Do you like it? I sure do. We're talking about mixed doubles this week. It's going on the Canadian Championships down in Calgary. We want to talk about a lot of that. And who better to speak to about the mixed doubles than a team that's in the mixed doubles? Mark Kennedy and Val Sweeting are ripping their way through it. And we're going to talk to them today. Boy, do I enjoy mixed doubles curling. It's so quick and, and the athleticism. I just really, really enjoy it. Uh, Warren, you invented this game. You're still proud of it? I am, Jim, and I think people are learning more about it. We're reading on our Facebook page that some people really like it, uh, some not so much, but we'll talk about that a little later in the show. But it's great. Let's get it rolling, Kev. Let's give me some heavy peel weight, okay? Right now. Last rock, eighth end, up by two. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. It's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Benny. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last here. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Okay, boys, here we go. Uh, we've got another great show for everyone right now. Of course, we've got the interview, like I mentioned, with Val Sweeting and uh, Mark Kennedy. And also our regular bits that we're using right now. We love it. We've got a couple of emails that we want to get to. Uh, there was an interesting thing that happened during the Briar uh, with a delay a game almost up to 45 minutes. We're going to talk about that, which, you know, what happened with it. Should there be a, you know, more of a penalty? Uh, totally interesting. You don't see it very often. Uh, our Facebook group is alive and well. Uh, we're into the thousands uh, with them, and uh, we love to use that stuff, uh, particularly Warren. You must not be sleeping at all, Warren. We talk about this every week. I don't sleep, Jim. I don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, how are you doing down in Calgary? What do you think so far? Well, Jimmy, actually not down in the bubble just yet. I leave uh, on Monday before the Men's Worlds and... Uh, Trying to figure out exactly what to bring because uh, between the men's worlds and the two Grand Slam events and women's worlds and the potential of even another event at the end, uh, I'm trying to get ready for either uh, six weeks or eight weeks in a bubble. So <laughs> I'm trying to get my bags packed properly. How many games are you going to be doing, Kevin? If it all comes to be, I think there's a chance uh, I could call about 99 games over the next two months. <laughs> What? I think that's pretty close, Jim. <laughs> Holy man. Warren, what do you think so far of the mixed doubles? I think it's been very entertaining. I think some people are really enjoying it. Maybe some of the older fans of the sport of curling aren't so into it, but I think as time goes on, that will progress. I think this is the first real good uh, visual experience that Canadian fans are having with uh, mixed doubles being on television. So I think that's probably going to help it a lot. I think as it goes forward... There's got to be a lot more events developed, and I think from a Curling Canada point of view, they've got to work a little bit at making there being more things available for the players to play in. 
the ranking aspect of it has to be uh, picked up, but I think it's going to catch hold really good going forward. And I think to a very large degree, it's going to be part of the sport for the future. I kind of look at mixed doubles with curling. It's kind of like the beach volleyball of volleyball and the rugby sevens of rugby. It's a new flair of the game. Mm -hmm. Some people still get it confused as thinking it should be like regular curling, and it's not. It's very different. It's different rules, different approach. And as I've said to many people, it's a different game. So when I watch it, Warren, the things I come away from is, man, is it ever fast? Boy, is there ever a ton of action? Uh, I like the shortened ends, um, positioning rocks, this power play. When you hear me say that, Warren, is that, was that exactly your goal when you invented this game? I think the big thing that we did when we were inventing it was trying to develop something that was going to guarantee and ensure offense. And those two stationary rocks were all centered around that. It was also going to be quick, could have many options in it. As I suggest in, in, in our interview today, I've talked many times about why aren't the uh, people switching positions in the middle of the game, which that was the intent of it. They're not. But uh, it's unfolding, I think, very much like we foresaw it would when we put the thing together. If you were playing in mixed doubles, Kev, uh, what would be most difficult thing about it uh, compared to four-man curling? Well, the, f- the fitness part, definitely. You know what? I, I was watching uh, Brett Gallant. He's a, he's about as fit a, a human as you're going to find. Mm-hmm. And he gets done sweeping about three or four rocks back to back to back, end to end. And he goes to Jocelyn and he's trying to talk, but he can't talk. He just, <laughs> you know, and, and this guy's amazingly fit. And then he has to go and, and throw another one and then sweep it all the way down. And that is just so different to have, be able to have a, a really good touch while you're panting basically because of the fitness level. Like this game, this mixed doubles game is so good and so much fun. I know when uh, Warren uh, started it in the Continental Cup, I loved playing it, but I was a lot younger then. So I, I really do think this is a primarily a young person game because you've got to throw the rock, jump up, sweep it, and there's only a couple seconds before you have to throw another one or sweep it. And it's a high activity, hour and 20 minutes, you're done. But but boy, oh boy, you, you, you'd be absolutely soaked. <laughs> like, right. like you are sweating like crazy in this game. And, and I just think it, there's so many rocks in place, so much action, so much strategy, and so quick. That checks all the boxes for young athletes in my mind. Like, I just think it's a terrific game for young people. Should they slow it down then, Kev, if you took anything away from that or if I did from what you just said? Or is that just the way it should be and you're going you're gonna to have to go with it, whether you're out of breath or not? Well, yeah, I think it's perfect. It's just a fast-moving, paced curling game. And I know, you know Warren says, well, a lot of the older people maybe won't want to play it. Well, that's okay. Play four-person curling. That doesn't matter. It's all good. But there'll be some people that are of, of the older group, and I'd be one of them. I know I'd be awfully tired by the end, but boy, fun to get, to get out there and give her and, and, and whoever your partner is, they're busy and they're sweating and it's a heck of a workout. And I just don't see any negatives in all that. I know it's not, you know, you know a slow-paced, relaxed game, you know, like, like 18 holes of golf. That's kind of like a normal curling game. Mm-hmm. This is different. And it's just, you know, maybe you know, not everybody's going to love it, but the people that want to get out and get some exercise and have fun and a highly aggressive game, that's mixed doubles. Warren, why is the rule, when you looked at designing this, uh, the curler who throws the first rock, there's five, five rocks in each end for each team, the curler who throws the first stone uh, has to throw the fifth, and the other curler f- throws two, three, and four. Give me an idea how you came up with that and, and why is it that way and not anyone can throw the opening rock? 
Well, it was to put a challenge into the players as to who was going to be the person that threw only two rocks and who was the one that was going to throw three. And uh, originally, we thought that that would probably change from end to end, depending upon the circumstance. But it seems the players aren't looking at it that way, which is fine. If that's the way they want to approach it, uh, I don't see any problem. But that option is always there if you decide in the middle of a game or whatever you want to do, you want to change the order. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think it's uh, it's just to add an a- added element of excitement to the game. And again, as far as uh, time, we don't want to do anything to lengthen any games in curling. I think the fact that this is quick takes a short period of time. Uh, we'll get younger people's attention, and that's what we want it to do. Uh, we love your opinion. Uh, you can email us, insidecurling at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Curling Inside and Facebook at Inside Curling, and check us out on Instagram at Inside Curling Podcast and uh, insidecurling at gmail.com. Kev, you've got an interesting email you want to talk about uh, from a guy from Austin, Texas. Yes, the Pond Hockey Club in Austin, Texas, going from an arena club to a dedicated club. So arena club, just so everybody knows, is a club where they'll rent ice from a hockey facility and play for maybe two hours, and then the hockey players or figure skaters come back out. So you kind of share the ice, and you might get, you know, four, six, or eight hours of curling per week. And, of course, it's, it's, it's bedlam trying to move the scoreboards and the rocks and everything onto the ice, get the ice playable somewhat, and then play your two hours and then take it all down in time for the hockey players to come back out and start playing again. Well, Mm -hmm. of course, a lot of the clubs down south that are arena clubs want to become dedicated. And what that means is then they would have their four or five sheets of ice in the hockey rink, but only curling is played in that rink. And that's what they're having in Austin is dedicated curling ice. And that is absolutely fantastic. And there's more than, just so everybody knows, there's more than 200 curling clubs in the U.S. right now. I think it's around 212 clubs, but they're opening new ones all the time. So it's probably more like 215 right now. So curling is growing at an incredible rate down south. And like anything else, so when you start a new club, there's a few things that need to be dealt with. And that's, of course, your leagues, you know, setting up your leagues. Because before, you've only got, say, two or three ice sessions in a whole week. It's pretty easy to fill those with curlers. But now you have a building that's 24-7 yours. So now it's it's a concern of okay we need members <laughs> so let's go out and they said they're gonna they're gonna open their doors with about a hundred members and they want to get to two hundred members by the end of their first dedicated year and that sounds about right to me their goal is probably going to be around four hundred to well five hundred at the most but four hundred to five hundred members so it was really nice to hear from Darren Henley talking about mixed doubles and and worrying about trying the new disciplines. One other thing that Darren brought up, and, and this is something that you know Warren and I talk about quite a lot, and that's the corporate end of it. And in Austin, Texas, they are going to, this is going to be really busy. This club is going to be rocking. And I think, I think Darren um, is going to be surprised how busy it's going to get and how quickly. Um, there's one name I, I do want to send out because whenever it comes to running events or running clubs, or you, know, you talk to a curling club who's doing very, very well, there's always the person. There's one person who really takes that club under its wing or tournament that does really, really well. If you're going to start move a Grand Slam event into a city, there's always that one person that's really, really, really strong. In this case, Darren says, our guy <laughs> is right. David Gersenson at Curl Austin. He's been a big 
investor and promoter of the club. So that's the guy in this case who's really spearheaded this movement in, in Austin. And I think it's fantastic. And I guess that just speaks to the growth of curling in the U.S. Warren, I know you'll have you'll definitely have some thoughts on this. Yeah, I'm sure it's one of many, many stories we're going to be hearing like this in the uh, in the months and years ahead. Uh, constantly growing in the United States, we're going to see probably some of these other facilities uh, of this nature that are strictly that are curling and hockey at the moment that'll become strictly curling. I know there's one that you're familiar with, Kevin Kalamazoo. That was the same situation. It was combined with hockey and curling, and is now dedicated curling. And things are just going to continue to grow in the United States. So I look at it to being a very positive future for the sport. One thing that I think is, is really important in the growth of, of curling in the U.S. is teaching. So it's funny, Garnet Ekstrand, you brought up Kalamazoo, so a really good friend of mine and somebody that I actually curled second for in junior, Garnet Ekstrand, when he was really, he was kind of the guy. It's funny, you always take about the person who does this stuff. Well, Garnet in Kalamazoo was the one who, who, who really got that started. But it's funny talking to Garnet, he said as the sport grew very rapidly in Kalamazoo, he said when they first opened the club, there were six skips in the club out of about 100 members. So those would be the teachers. We said, uh, you know, a couple of years later, we have 350 members. And guess what? We still only have six skips because everybody coming in are, aren't curlers at all. And, and they love the game. But there's this big learning curve. And there's just such a need in the U.S. for top-level instruction. And there's just not a lot of it going on right now. And that that is something that, needs to be worked on. And uh, if it's inside curling, if Warren and I are, are going to maybe try to do some of that, we'll see. But somebody needs to uh, to have almost like a traveling training <laughs> show uh, in the U.S. because you get all these clubs, you know, we hear Darren talking about going from 100 to 200 to 300 members. Well, these members coming in are from Texas. They're, they're not coming from a curling club to another club. They're coming into a game they've never played. So we really need to concentrate on instruction. We've done a couple Zoom calls, speaking of clubs. Uh, we did one with a club in Barrie, and um, most recently we did one with a club in Edmonton uh, in, the, in the Northeast. Warren, you could hear the frustrations from both clubs when we, we did talk to them. For we are, you're, You guys are on for about an hour. Uh, the frustration with these people trying to maintain membership, trying to grow it, trying to get young people involved. When you hear about this club opening in Austin, Warren, you know, if you were going to run at them right away and say, okay, well, what are you doing here before you open the doors? What would you tell them, Warren, would be the most important things? Well, I think you've got to make sure that you're creating an atmosphere, particularly for the younger people, that's going to be exciting and uh, things are going to happen quick and fun. It's a little different attitude about curling in the United States than Canada. Younger people down there are very, very curious about it. And maybe it's because it's been part of the fabric in Canada for many, many years. It's a, a little different approach. But I think with all these clubs, they've got to focus on getting younger people involved. And I mean, that's been the issue in Canada with every club we've talked to. You ask them, what's the average age of your member? And they'll say, oh, 55, 58. Uh, but we don't have very many people in their 20s and early 30s. And that's going to be a challenge going forward for everybody. I think the sport of curling has to adjust to accommodate what this age group wants. And I don't think we're doing that right now. Curling is no exception to any other sport uh, in, in terms of we we got to get more people involved. We have to get more people watching it on television. we got to get the ratings up to grow the sport. And, of course, networks and Curling Canada, everyone lives in, and, and breathes on is the sport growing. Uh, we've now been through the Scotties. We've been through the Briar. We're in the middle of the mixed doubles. 
there's going to be many other events, as you just heard. Kevin's down in the bubble there for eight weeks or so. The numbers, Warren, uh, that have come out since uh, they've finished both the Scotties and the Briar are surprising. What do you got for us, Warren, on the TV ratings? Well, we talked last week that both the Scotties and the Briar were, were off significantly from what had happened the year prior with the ratings. However, there was a story out this week that was really, really positive for the sport of curling. And it suggested that while the ratings were off about 30% on both finals, there is a good story behind it. And the fact that, again, we're in a changing world. And that world of how we deliver video to the public, whether it's through cable, television, video streaming, whatever the case is going to be. And that, that process is in the process of changing. So what came out was that people are very interested in curling. And that interest appears to be growing. But it's not necessarily in a traditional viewing of the past. Streaming and page content jumped significantly, and that shows where the sport needs to direct probably more of its attention in the years ahead. Over the 10-day period of the Scotties and the Briar, streaming rose by about 63%, and there were 2 million video starts, more than triple what it had been the year prior. There were also over 7 million page views of Briar content, a jump of almost 50% from 2020. So it boils down to the fact that Things are getting better, Mm -hmm. and it just tells us we have to create probably more content for fans that's probably a little shorter, probably a lot of YouTube stuff, the stuff that we've talked about doing with Inside Curling. The future is looking bright, but it's going to be a little different approach to life than what it has been in the past. I think everyone agrees that going going forward, it's going to be all about streaming games. Uh, You know, in the last couple of years, uh, you know, Warren, you've mentioned about the, you know, maybe the 30-second ad isn't there anymore. Curling, like golf now, does what they call a playthrough when you're watching the event and they split screen, Kev. I'm sure you've seen this where they show the commercial, but they keep a camera on the game. Interesting, Amazon Prime just signed a deal for Thursday Night Football for $110 billion. Okay, that's B. B is in big bucks. <laughs> so, Kevin, you've been around a long time, uh, as, as so have you, Warren, to see the growth of the game. What do you think, Kevin, when it comes to the sort of digital streaming side of this? Is it going to change pretty quickly? Well, I think that uh, COVID has definitely sped things up a little bit. No question about that. One thing that I'd like to mention when it comes to uh, ratings, I'm not really worried about the growth of curling, to be honest. Uh, Worldwide, Mm -hmm. it's growing like crazy. But at the start of the pandemic um, in March, April, when they shut down all sports, I'm, I'm thinking that there'd be a big number of people that would shut down their the subscriptions to uh, sports channels because there weren't any sports. Mm-hmm. And then how many come back and, and grab the, those or, or do they start to learn how to stream? And I think that's a really important thing to think about. And that's between the people that aren't going to subscribe again, but stream. And then the young people that don't have cable at all. So I'm not surprised that the ratings are down, but I think that Tons of people are watching curling. I think curling's very solid. Uh, it's just, I've got three kids ranging from 19 to 31 years old, and none of them have cable. And I've talked to quite a few people over the last week about this exact phenomenon, and the people my age that have kids in that age, I haven't talked to one yet where the kid has cable. Okay, well, if that's the case, and Kark's 31, so anybody say 31 or 35 and under, they don't have cable. Well, obviously ratings are going to, cable ratings are going to drop because they just don't have it. But Kark's not going to miss a curling game. He's going to watch every one. It's just mm-hmm. on different platforms. 
So I'm not worried about this at all, actually, but I think that we want to continue to evolve the game where it's inviting for young people to watch and enjoy and play. It'll be interesting to see, Warren, where this does go when you hear this deal that Amazon brought to the NFL, uh, you know, what, what is Netflix going to do something, Crave, HBO, all these other guys. I think this thing's going to change rapidly over the next four or five or six months to a year. Well, I don't know if it'll be that quick, but I, I think we're going to see a considerable change probably in the next uh, three to five years. And, and I originally thought it was probably going to be about a 10-year span, but I think, again, COVID has shortened everything up with regard to this change. And I think we're going to see a lot of things happen in this regard for all sports uh, uh, in the next few years ahead. We're right in the middle of a bunch of curling uh, going on. Uh, you know, the mixed doubles, of course, uh, is well underway, and they're in the middle of it. And we look forward to talking to Val Sweeting and, and Mark Kennedy coming up. Uh, the Briar, Kevin and Warren, right out of left field. Uh, Stephen Laycock uh, decides, I know what I'm going to do. I'm really pissed, so I'm going <laughs> to slam, slam my broom into the ice. Well, tilt, man, tilt. It caused a bunch of damage, and it delayed the game well over 30 minutes. And, and then everyone said, well, now what? Warren, what did you take away from that? Well, I think it was a bit of a hmm moment, because having been involved with that aspect with Curling Canada for many years, it's quite frankly something I never really gave a lot of thought to, but I think it's time that we probably did, that if someone does something that's going to cause the game to be delayed for whatever reason, there needs to be some penalty. Because if you look at this situation, I think it was almost 45 minutes that game was delayed, Botcher was playing them, BC, and it was a huge game to Botcher. Uh, if he doesn't win that game, uh, he could be in some trouble even getting into the near the final round. So for them to um, not receive any benefit from being put into 45-minute delay doesn't probably make any sense, regardless of what happens and who does what. If it's the other team that's caused the problem, there needs to be a penalty. So from my point of view, I think it should be much like at the start of a game where if you don't show up at the start of the game, there is a penalty. After 30 minutes, if you're not there, the game is forfeited. So I think there needs to be something similar. Maybe if you delay the game for five minutes, you lose a point. And for every 10 minutes after that, it's another point. And if that goes to 35 minutes, maybe the game is over. I don't know, but I think it's something that needs to be looked at. What do you think, Kevin? First, I want to say uh, Steve Laycock's about as nice a person as you're going to meet. So I love picking on him. This is terrific. Uh, <laughs> if you meet Steve Laycock, everybody likes him. But he made a big mistake when uh, when he took a chunk out of the ice. It sort of equates to me sort of like uh, you miss a putt in golf and you bury your putter head right beside the hole. Well, obviously, now what? You, you've wrecked the surface of the green right beside the hole. Well, what's the penalty? There, there's going to be one. <laughs> But what, what should it, what should it be? Um, going forward, something that delays the game, you know, 35, 40 minutes, you, you probably have to kick that player off the ice. Does that team automatically lose the game? That's pretty aggressive. I don't, I'm not sure about that, but maybe you're right, Warren. Maybe it's a point or two. Certainly that player has to be removed from the game. There's no way there. You, you bury a putter head beside the hole. There's not going to be some huge ramifications the PGA Tour would put on that player. And this is about the same situation. They couldn't continue to play until they resurfaced the ice. That's amazing. Like they had to fill that hole. Otherwise the rock would fall in the hole. Like it, like it was a big hole. This is something that it can't be ignored. And it's just something that has to be dealt with what the penalty should be. That's up to, you know, that that's part of the negotiation between the players and, and uh, curling Canada and everybody else involved. But there has to be a penalty 
of some sort. And, you know, that really bothers me because I, I love the fact that curling pretty much is self officiated mm -hmm. by the players. I, I, I love that part. But when something like this happens, and you're right, Warren, like there was a huge game for Team Botcher. Botcher loses that. I think they, uh, they could have potentially, I think they probably would have been in a tie break uh, had New Brunswick beat the territories in their last game. Just an unbelievable situation. So to just kind of, you know, sweep it under the rug uh, is probably not the right answer. It could have been ugly, Warren, if Botcher loses that game. No, I think it's just something that uh, we've all overlooked for many, many years. And I think it's time that uh, Curling Cad and the World Curling Federation needs to look at this and uh, put something in place. Well, we'll watch for that uh, to see what happens. Um, Warren, bring us up to speed. You got to pick something from Facebook, Warren. I see, I see people are picking on you a little bit and you get back to them. It's like reading, my entertainment reading each night. And go, Let's see who Hanson pissed off this week. <laughs> uh, bring us up to speed, Warren. What jumps out at you from our Facebook group? We engage with people on there on occasion and to create a little bit of fun, and I think that's the whole idea of our Facebook page. So we've got a very active group there that's getting close to 5,000. If you aren't a member, we really invite you to come in and, and become a member and get into some of the discussions. And there's lots of opinions, pros and cons of whatever thing you want to put out there. But for sure, uh, get on that Facebook group if you aren't there already. And we're asking poll questions quite often as well. Rod Paulson is the guy who administrates that particular page. So he's been pretty busy as well, to say the least. But I'll just give you the results of one of the polls done in the last few days. It was about mixed doubles. And if you look on the Facebook group, there's a lot of people that say, I don't like it, I hate it, it's not real curling. But, of course, there's many others that say, yeah, they think it's great. But here was the question. We asked the question of if you'd like it or if you love it or would you like to try and play it? And 70% of about 300 people who responded to that said, yes, we do like it. And the second half of the question was, I have no interest and I don't like it. And that was only 30% of the people that responded. So I think majority of the curling populace out there that's certainly on our Facebook group have indicated they like mixed doubles. So hopefully that's going to lead to further development and more exposure of mixed doubles to the curling world. We get a lot of the older, the older crowd, Warren, going, don't mess with my game. Don't mess with my game. Going forward, this will be interesting. I think it's what happens with any sport. If you look at uh, volleyball being a huge example, when they introduced beach volleyball, the the old guard of volleyball was uh, setting their hair on fire about this is ridiculous, this isn't volleyball, yet it was what it was would give that sport new energy. And I think if you look at rugby with rugby sevens, it's the same thing. It's given the sport new energy, and it's brought that new element into the sport, but it's also brought more people into the older side of the sport, which I think that'll happen in curling. If this mixed doubles and maybe triples begins to bring in newer, younger people, it'll spill over into four-person curling. So it's all going to help the sport. Okay, very good, boys. Uh, you're well-behaved again. Okay, I, I'm, I'm waiting for a big fight, Kevin, with you and Warren, okay? I mean, I, mean, I, I want to see you guys go toe-to-toe -to -toe one day because it's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's about even odds who would win. Okay, between the two of you. Well, we're both stubborn anyway. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, there we go. Very good. When we come back, we're going to uh, bring on our well-decorated guests, uh, Mark Kennedy, of course, and uh, Val Sweeney, who just won the Scotties uh, for two years in a row now. So we look forward to talking to them. Stick around.
there it is. Can you hear that? There's a knock at the door. They'll lower the drawbridge and, and let in our two guests, two of the most decorated curlers in Canada. Uh, Mark Kennedy is here, of course, and Val Sweeting. Uh, how are you, Val? I'm good. Thanks for having us today. You're welcome. We've been giving people the karma who come on the show. Uh, and when they do, uh, they end up winning. We have a little more work to do with Kennedy. Okay, we've got a little more work to do. Uh, <laughs> I'll take whatever I can get, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, Val, congratulations uh, to you and your team. You guys won the Scotties, of course, if anyone's been living in a cave and haven't heard that. And two times a winner. How have you been managing that victory, Val? Take us through there. Have you stayed down in the bubble or you've traveled back and forth? What's happening with you? Went back and forth, left after the Scotties and uh, was able to go home and spend some time with the family. There wasn't any ice in my area, but uh, just enjoyed some downtime and basically started the process to come back here and uh, was good leading into this. The mixed doubles, of course, that you're in right now, you guys are right in the middle of it and looks like you're going to zip through to the playoffs for sure. Did you like having to curl a couple of weeks after uh, Val or do you know, has the break done you well or do you wish you had a little more time? I think I was a little bit nervous the first game having a couple of weeks off and, uh, and we were playing Brendan, but uh, yeah, I think we settled in pretty good and just tried to shake any rust off. I noticed it a bit with the sweeping right away. You definitely notice if you have a break there, but yeah, I think, we kind of found a groove pretty quick. Absolutely, you did. And uh, Kennedy, maybe maybe the sweeping's your fault, is it? Oh, it definitely is, yeah. <laughs> and the line calling, you got it. It's it's mostly my fault. You were closer to the mixed doubles because you finished the briar. What have you been doing? Have you stayed down there in the bubble? I've been in the bubble ever since the start of the briar. So the briar finished on the, um, well, our briar finished on the Saturday. Uh, we stuck around and watched Brendan win on Sunday. And then uh, mixed doubles didn't get going until Thursday. So I had a couple of days here of just, you know, rest and relaxation to get ready. Uh, I was pretty excited to play mixed, um, to get back out on that ice and compete. And, and I, I love mixed doubles. And yeah, we've been having a lot of fun. And, you know, it's been interesting to see um, Val's whole team actually playing in the mixed doubles. I think, you know, uh, knowing they're going to do great at the Worlds, I, I think they'll look back at the uh, time they played in mixed doubles and, and had some of this competition and sweeping and getting to make shots. And um, I think it's going to serve them really well as opposed to, you know, just kind of being stuck at home and not able to get practice ice. So I think it's it's kind of good for everyone that still has some stuff to play for later in the year to be playing here at mixed doubles. Uh, besides the obvious changes, uh, Val, in mixed doubles compared to regular four-person curling, you know, there's less rocks, there's less ends, there's, you know, just the two of you on a team. What's the biggest adaption you have to make uh, from your four-person team to mixed doubles? Well, for me, just getting comfortable throwing that last rock again, that's a big change. And fortunately, I have some experience doing that for a lot of players. They may not. And then just trying to do all the jobs of four people between two people right. is challenging. But uh, yeah, I think that we just do a good job of communicating and learning and we kind of have similar mindsets. So it's been been working well. But yeah, mixed doubles. I love the pace. It's so much fun to play and just learning all the angles and everything like that. Uh, yeah, it's lots of fun. Mark, if you can figure out the format, uh, you should win a gold medal. 
in this. It's wonky. So what do you find the most difficult or most challenging things, Mark, from... You know what? I'll tell you what. I, I really enjoy it. You know, to Val's point, it's uh, the pace of play. It's quick. Um, you got to be pretty engaged all the time. There's usually lots of rocks in play. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love it. But, you know, the other thing Val touched on is is you don't have really a lot of people to rely on. You know, sometimes on that four-person team, you can... You're not as exposed, you know, you've got a little more help, um, a little more support. In this case here, you know, if things aren't going well and, and we had a tough game that wasn't going well, you, you can't really get, you know, upset or down on yourself because that other person still needs you. So, you know, you really got to force that positive energy as much as possible and and rely on each other as much as possible. And I, you know, I think that's something we've managed to do really well, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's just a great discipline and it really challenges you as a curler in all different ways. You know, you got to be able to hit, you got to be able to draw, you got to be able to sweep, you got to know strategy and angles. And, and I've said this for years since I, I first played a few mixed doubles events, it definitely made me a better player. I realized how much more I needed to improve and, and how much I was relying on my teammates around me and, and, and should be doing more of my own, you know, should be challenging myself to be better. So mixed doubles is just a, a fantastic discipline for that. Well, Mark, uh, well, both both of you guys, um, one thing that I wonder about a lot with mixed doubles, I didn't play it a lot much when I was curling, but I did look through the uh, the list of the top teams in this event and what position each one plays on their four-person team. I'd like to hear your thoughts as to the assets and which positions they come from. When I looked at the list, uh, primarily the top teams in the mixed doubles are mostly thirds in four-person curling. Is that by fluke or is there a reason for that? Mark. (laughs) I thought Val might take that one. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really good question, Kevin. I I think that just is a perhaps a testament to what thirds have to do in a game and how flexible they have to be with, you know, having all the shots, being able to sweep, doing some line calling, being involved in the strategy. I guess, you know, you kind of become a multifaceted player by playing third, you know, and you see some of the skips out there that are pretty successful as well from that same perspective, having to throw all the shots, knowing the strategy, knowing the game, and those skips that are in good enough shape and able to sweep also seem to have some success. But um, yeah, that's a really interesting point and and just goes to show that that thirds, especially in the four-person game, kind of have to be able to do it all, I guess you could say. And it helps on our team too, like Val mentioned, her having that skipping experience and knowing what it's like to throw the last rock. Because I think sometimes that can be a bit of a shock for for some of the athletes out here that haven't had to do that before. You know, watching your team I, I, uh, play, um, luckily you guys have been on TV enough that I've been able to watch you guys. And uh, seems to me that the two of you versus other teams, a lot of teams will have basically one person doing all the sweeping. But in your case, it seems to me that both of you sweep quite a lot, more than than most. I think you're sharing that responsibility more, which in my opinion, it makes a lot of sense because you're not burning out one of the sweepers. But is that by design or is it just because Val is a strong sweeper? What do you think, Val? Kind of surprised that <laughs> Mark entrusted me to sweep his rocks. But uh, yeah, I think you look at Brett and Jocelyn are really successful, but Brett sweeps everything. Like he's very fit but he's still that's got to be tiring um I think it balances it out and I think we have a good 
good communication. I think not having a person in the house can sometimes hurt in terms of a line call. I think it's a little easier when you're maneuvering a couple of rocks if the line call is coming from the house. But yeah, I think it just helps keep us both fresh and just sharing that responsibility. So that's a good point, Val. Um, I, I don't know how you practiced over the years, but I'd like to hear from Mark a little bit because one thing that the way that we practiced when Mark and I played together for all those years was using a lot of visualization, sliding out and knowing the path of the rock, not worrying so much about the broom, but just knowing where the rock goes and how it goes. And I'm just wondering for the young people listening to this show, uh, if they can train themselves a little bit to your point, Vel, of uh, not aim, not, I shouldn't say not aiming at the broom, but not needing a broom, but by visualizing the surface and the path of the stones, then you, you don't need th- that person at the other end holding the broom in mixed doubles. You can actually have the person sweeping. Any thoughts on that, uh, Mark? Yeah. Well, you, you, you kind of nailed it on the head, I think. Thanks. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to the way that you and I would practice, you know, after we would do our technical work, you know, you would often throw, or you and I would play a, a two end game aiming at a, at a spot on the ice, but having a sweeper there talking about the path, the speed, and then just, you know, going ahead with making the shot, aiming at, uh, you know, maybe you're aiming at a spot on the bumper or, or a general area, like the edge of eight, that type of thing. And I think you're right. I think it changes your focus to, you know, I have to hit this target and instead puts you more in the spot of, okay, I'm going to feel the path, um, you know, feel the speed under my feet and really rely on that, um, I guess that other part of, of your feel as a curler, as opposed to just having to hit that broom. And, and I think that's where mixed doubles is just a, a great discipline in that sense is, you know, sometimes it's not about splitting the broom. It's more about weight control. It's more about the rotation. It's more about, you know, what are you giving to the sweeper and all that other type of stuff that's so much more important. And you're right, a, a great message to pass on to those young athletes. It's it's not always about hitting the broom because you know, sometimes the skip doesn't have the broom in the right spot anyway. So there's so much more to it. And mixed doubles, the way that Val and I have done it, uh, really relates back to our the way that we've practiced forever, Kev, which is just to kind of pick a target somewhere out there and, um, and, and keep your sweeper with you and try to feel the shot out. Val, I want to come back to you with one thing, and we'll get Warren in here. But with, with what Mark said about feel, being able to feel the stone, this is for the young people out there listening, or, or any of the curlers for that matter, but this goes back to even just basic technical stuff, and I'll try not to get into too much of it, except how important it is to not strangle the handle when you're gripping the rock. And if you're trying to visualize and be able to feel uh, that touch, that release, that speed you need, that grip has to be quite light on the rock handle so you can use your fingers to feel the speed and the texture of the pebble underneath the rock. Does that make sense to you, Velen? Is that something you concentrate on? Yeah, I think that that's definitely a really good skill to develop because you can, I think that technical work in itself is really important, but at the end of the day, when you're in that pressure situation and you got to make that shot, it comes back to feel and, uh, and how are you going to make the shot? Paying attention to all those little details, I think is really important. Let me put forward an interesting question to you guys. Since I was the architect of this game and uh, give you some idea of our vision when we put it together, and that was the order of play. 
So it was set up so that uh, the positions of the person throwing one and five and two, three, four could be switched around kind of at will. And it was kind of our thought when the game was designed that uh, people would do this depending upon the situation. But it doesn't seem to be happening. I think the only team I've noticed so far has been the team from Quebec that's made that change in the middle of the game. So I guess two questions. One is, how do you really determine who's going to throw the first and fifth rock? Because it seems like it's mostly pretty much always the women. And then the two, three, four. And why don't you switch back and forth? Maybe, Mark, do you want to jump in on that one and give us some ideas? Yeah, it's a good question, Warren. And and perhaps it's something that's not being used enough. It's a tool in everyone's toolbox. But you almost, as you get into the rhythm of a game, you know, often maybe it's something that you just forget to do. You know, you get so used to getting comfortable in your position and knowing your role and and in the middle of a competition or the middle of a game, it, it's hard to think, oh, I can switch this up if I wanted to. So perhaps it's as much just the the obliviousness of it. And maybe that's why teams aren't making that change very often. But, you know, in our case and in most teams' case, I think the idea is, you know, the, the men can typically think throw it a little harder, not in every case, but in a lot of cases, and, and being able to open some things up if the middle of the end isn't going good um, seems to be a tool that a lot of teams want to use. You know, it's a great question and probably needs a little bit more of uh, more thought, but that's all I've got for you. Because the other thing I find interesting, and, and look at your team, I think you guys, because of Val's experience throwing last rock for a number of years, have maybe got that in the right place. But I look at some of the other teams where I'm saying, Maybe the person that's throwing in the middle there is the one that's the most familiar with throwing the last rock, but they're doing it the other way around. It seems to always be the the females throwing one and five and the men two, three, four. Do you know why that is or it just happens? Yeah, it's a really good question. It just seems to kind of happen that way. You know, Emma Miskew is one player that I've seen play both, you know, one and five, but also been that middle of the lineup depending on who her teammate is. You know, so that's one person that's kind of moved around over the years in that position. But but yeah, it's it's a really good question, Warren, and and I don't really have that answer for you. What do you think, Val? <laughs> I, I got nothing either. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, that was a really good question. Yeah. <laughs> Jim, maybe you could answer it. I love the mixed doubles. I I really enjoyed it. I love how fast it is. Mark, is it uh, and Val? Is it almost too fast? I mean, I see people running up and down the sheet, you know, to to get in the hack a little quicker. Uh, and it's almost sort of breathless compared to the, the four-man game. How do you find that, Val, the speed of which you guys have to throw rocks all the time to get in there and, and deliver? It can be quick at times, or if uh, just swept three hard ones and then got to throw the last, but um, that you know rarely, rarely happens. And also, I've trained for it too. Like I usually sweep the first four and then have to throw. It's a little bit different pace, but... Um, yeah, I think teams just kind of have to figure that out. And we've had a lot of conversations about, you know, where where are we going to talk about the shots and what we're going to do to try and save time so that we're mm-hmm. not up and down the sheet so much and we can kind of preserve ourselves. So it's just kind of finding that balance and that flow within the game, you know, and within the team of what works for those two players. And it's it's an ongoing thing to figure it out depending on the situation, the score, what's happening, who's sweeping, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's just got to find that balance and that flow. You brought up a really good point there, Val, and you might have answered one of my questions from earlier. You said uh, when you're playing third, you have to sweep four rocks really hard and be ready to throw. 
Well, maybe that is why thirds do so well at this game, because in the four-person game, you do sweep four hard, get ready to throw your two. In this game, if you have to sweep the two, three, and four stone, now you've got to be ready to throw the fifth. So there is some very big similarities to versus, say, the skip who doesn't sweep very often or a lead that's going to throw their two after the break. Interesting. That does a really good point. Thank you. <laughs> Let me direct another technical question. Val, maybe you can answer this one. So mixed doubles, you cannot remove any rucks from play until after three rucks are thrown. And of course, in four-person curling, that's not the case. Do you think this is a good idea? Do you think this is something that might make even four-person curling different if maybe three or four rucks weren't able to be removed? Or do you think it make it make any difference? Yeah, I think it could make a big difference. Um, I enjoy that rule depending on the score in mixed doubles. <laughs> no, um, I think it's a good one. It just definitely makes you think more and think ahead more when you can't hit as early. And I enjoy that strategy piece of it. It makes you think a little bit differently. And uh, I think it makes teams be more creative. Yeah, like Mark said earlier, just developing as a better player overall. I think that it definitely helps in that sense as well. So we're finding challenges again, as we saw in the Briar, with scoring in the four-person game. So Mark, do you think that this might be something that could improve the scoring opportunities in the four-person game, or do you think it make any difference? Well, it's a good question. I think Kevin can probably attest to this too. I know that they tried that at a Grand Slam a few years ago, quite a few years ago now, where it was the four-rock rule, I believe, and you couldn't remove any rock from play, even if it was in the house. And if I remember correctly, it, it led to even more blank ends. It led to a, 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 almost a, a different type of defense, and it didn't have the, the goal that they set out to create more offense. So, you know, I would, if, if we were looking for more offense and less blank ends, I would really start leaning towards the no-tick area. And our being a team that has taken the tick on as a weapon, you know, a couple of good ticks in an end really changes everything. So I would be leaning more towards that as opposed to not being able to remove any rock from play. Yeah, I certainly agree with you on the no tick. Uh, Mark, because there's five, this is one for Mark. I really want to hear about this, and this is strategic. So this is once again aiming at the, the young people that listen to our show. In four-person curling, you like to own the top of the house, maybe the, you know, the rocks that are two or three feet outside of the house because you have eight rocks, you can bang them in at a later date. Mm -hmm. Mixed doubles is a little bit quicker than that, not as many stones. Where would you like to own this house? Is it top four? Is it top eight? Do you actually want to make that freeze, maybe bump it back a foot? I'm just wondering, by looking at a, the big picture, what part of that house do you want to own early in the end? When do you want to sort of move it back to the top button area in a perfect scenario? Yeah, that's a, it is a great question. And, you know, it's something we're still kind of figuring out. But, um, you know, Val and I, when we lost our game to Emma and Ryan, you know, we both have a habit of going through every single shot in a game that we lose, of course. And in doing that, that was one of the things I realized is that every one of my first draws, so our second shot of the game, I was almost right to the T line. So even though I may have been making a good freeze, I was getting too deep. And, you know, Ryan would lob one on top of mine and all of a sudden he's got that area of control in the top four and we were in big trouble the whole time. So one of our goals in the game yesterday was to just not be all the way to the T line. You know, even if I leave a couple top eight, bite the four, they become very usable rocks. And of course, in yesterday's game, that happened, and we ended up getting a three-ender in the fourth, 
which changed the whole game. So to your point, that top four area, even full eight early in that end, really makes a difference and is really the area you want to control. And just to dive in a little further, if, if I had to throw a draw top eight on one side of the sheet and I'm, you know, three quarters open, so if I didn't get that fully buried, I've really cut off that side of the sheet from the other team. I've already controlled that side. There's not much they can do with that rock. So yes, that top eight, top four area early in the end and being able to promote them as the end goes on, it kind of seems to be the secret to this game, in my opinion. What do you think, Val? Because I also know that that first freeze is also very important. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think if you don't have hammer, if you're throwing first, I think freezing is a good spot or at least, you know, full button but yeah like we kind of said before that game yesterday our new control zone as Kevin said in fours it's kind of a little bit higher uh, that tight top 12 area but we kind of said our new control zone is that top eight top four and that's where we want our rocks and then promote them maybe on marks second or third or at least have them there for me to use I think is key because yeah if you don't own that area you're going to be in big trouble uh, Mark, can you give me the strategy if you guys have a, sort of a set one? This power play is interesting in in mixed doubles. When do you think you want to use it? What's the situation where you would use it, uh, if at all, during a draw? It's a very cool thing, isn't it? Um, and that's still a lot of the topics of discussion with us is when to use it, how to use it. And, you know, we've we've touched base with Scott Pfeiffer and Jeff Stoughton, and these guys have watched you know, thousands of games now over the past couple of years. And, and they talk about what the European teams do. And typically it's trying to hang on to the power play as long as you can. And then also potentially stopping the other team from using their power play if possible later in the game. So it, it becomes a little bit of a chess match as to who's going to use it first. You know, especially, obviously, if you're way down in a game, you're going to use it. But in those close games, you know, am I going to use it in six? Are we going to use it in seven or try to save it for eight? It becomes that little bit of a chess match and, and can sometimes, uh, you know, for me, it gets a little bit complicated. You know, if I don't use it in seven, do we potentially give the other team a steal of one so that we have it in eight and maybe they never get to use it? You know, so that type of stuff and head games are going on. And, and for me, having not played very much, it's still a, a work in progress, still something we're trying to learn. So the other question about the power play, and this was an afterthought. This was brought in by the WCF uh, two or three years ago. It was designed to be an offensive move, but I guess it also really could be a defensive move as well, could it not? Yeah. I mean, our game yesterday against uh, Derek Samogalski, we were up four playing the eighth end. And, uh, you know, that's not an unsurmountable lead in mixed doubles, but we still had our power play. And we were going to use it in a defense mode in order to not give up a big end. Right. And that alone was the reason I think they shook hands. You know, we're not going to steal four when you guys have your power play. So it can definitely become a, a weapon for defense if you have a big lead because it just takes play away from the center line. And, and you could, uh, in theory, always leave your skip a, a draw to the forefoot because there's not going to be anything around the center line. Yep. So it allows you to hang on to control when you when you got the hammer. You got it. Hey guys, I just want to get into the uh, the rules here a little bit with mixed doubles being only two players and and uh, in four person curling, you know, in the championship you'd have a fifth player. So it's not like in Darren Molding's case where his back goes out and the team has to drop out. That's not going to happen in four person curling likely. So in two person curling though, one thing that kind of bugs me, I'd like to hear both of your guys' thoughts on this. 
So Darren and Joanne play three or four games and they're doing very, very well. They're three and one, something like that. And then Darren gets hurt. Now he has to forfeit the other games. And that's very unusual to have to totally forfeit. So um, I guess my thought is, do you go back in the schedule and just have them forfeit their first few games so that you make it fair throughout? Or do you just forfeit the last few? But that can make a huge impact on the playoffs situation, just depending on who they play and when. So I know it's unusual to have to forfeit because in four-person curling, it just wouldn't happen. But in two-person, it does. Havel, in this case, I just would like to know your thoughts on, do you go back in the schedule and just have them forfeit them all so anybody they played gets the win? Or are you okay with them playing three or four games and then having to forfeit the rest? But that has a huge playoff implication. Oh, gosh, yes. That's a a situation you hope never happens, but unfortunately it did. That's a really tough call. That's why I asked you, Vel. Yeah, I'm glad you're the one answering yeah. first. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, it's teams, you know, getting an auto win is really unfortunate. And, you know, their first game in that pool was really close back and forth to, like, I don't know. I honestly don't know. <laughs> it's just the only reason I bring it up is that I'm getting a lot of texts and messages from people uh, wanting my opinion. And uh, my opinion doesn't matter at all. But if people are asking me, there's a lot of people that are concerned about this because it at the implications to the teams that they're cheering for. All of a sudden, you know, that Darren and Joanne might have beat them in the second game of the round robin. But now the team they're trying to chase they get a free win at the end just because of the schedule. Mm -hmm. And they're going, well, this isn't fair. So, Mark, what do we do? Yeah, it's a really tough one. I, I think it's a learning lesson going forward that they have to have some type of plan in place for this to happen, whether that means there's, there's somebody hanging around as a spare. You know, perhaps you have a two- or three-person spare list at a national championship. I know this is tough with the bubble, but was there any chance that Jeff Walker could have stepped in and played a couple of games? Just throwing that out there because it definitely causes a big wrinkle. You know, I probably would have... Uh, <laughs> Come on, Mark, get off that fence. Oh, man, I know. You know what? I, I would like to find a way to eliminate all of their games. You know, I know it, I know it reduces one game in, their, in everybody's round robin. You know, then perhaps you're using a percentage-weighted system in order to determine where they would fall in the playoffs. Does that make sense? Because I agree with you. I, I, I don't think it's fair that... There's three teams that got losses and three teams that got the free wins. It's a crappy situation, but is there any way to just eliminate those six games from the entire event? I don't know if you could do that. That pool's only working on a five-round robin game as opposed to six. Is, is that possible, Warren? Yeah. Well, I think you've got to do something because, Kevin, you mentioned it's never a problem with four-person curling, but you know what? It can be, and Val will remember this because she played in the Scotties in Montreal in 2014. But we had this illness go through the entire event. Mm -hmm. And without alternate players, there were teams that were not going to be able to field a team because they were all ill and they just barely made it. So it could happen with four-person curling too. And I think it's a really good point that going forward, maybe there has to be a way of what happens if a, if a team cannot field a team. What do you do in these major events? Good point. Could they have not discussed in mixed doubles just the one player throwing all five rocks? I mean, typically in a four-person game, if you're down to three, there's a disadvantage when it comes to sweeping. There's, it's a lot more difficult, but you can still make it happen. Is that an unrealistic thing in mixed doubles that if you're down to one player, you just play with one? Maybe. 
Like, why not? I mean, you get up, you sweep your own, you're calling your own line, you're, you're at a disadvantage, you don't have that extra bit of help, but at least it's only five rocks. It's not so mixed anymore. It's not so mixed. That's right. It's, it's just singles is what it is. It's an issue, again, not just mixed doubles, but certainly with four-person curling as well, that it can happen depending upon circumstances. So, yeah. I'd love to hear Kevin's opinion. <laughs> Even though he says it doesn't matter, I'd love to hear it because there usually is one. There's always one. There's always one. <laughs> well, you know what? I The only thing that bothers me is scheduling means so much then. When did you play this couple? And so that's that totally is not fair. So, okay, I think what you can't do is leave it the way it is, where those wins count and then the ones later are automatic wins. That part's not fair. I think everybody would understand that. Now, the fix, the fix is tough. I never thought of your solution, Mark, the math. Just cut that one game out, do the math, there's your percentage, away you go. Not bad. To cut out all the games all of a sudden, so you have a just a heck of a battle in the first game, and uh, in, in that case, Joanne makes this unbelievable double-raise double to win that first game. Mm-hmm. And then you just scratch it off of it right, <laughs> because right. I mean, like, oh boy. So you know what? For the first time ever, I don't think I have the solution in my brain, but I do know that it's not fair the way it is. So interesting situation. I want. I really wanted to bring it up because I'm getting lots of people asking me and uh, I don't have the answer, but I can sure see the problem. Which provides the opportunity to find a solution going forward, which I think is is great, right? As the discipline continues to improve and grow, we just need to find solutions for these. So hopefully the the powers that be can find the right solution. Would you change anything to improve it, Val, or eliminate anything? What is your thought on that with the mixed doubles? I think everybody's enjoying it, even chatting with Carrie and Brianne a lot who haven't played it yet. It was, I think, a little bit challenging in the beginning, getting used to a new partner and stuff. But once they settled in, I think that they really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, Shannon has played it a lot with Catlin, so... Yeah, I think the overall feel is that curlers enjoy it. And uh, even going back to clubs and leagues, I think it has a really good chance to grow because sometimes it's difficult to field four people. So I think it's just, yeah, it's an exciting format. I'm excited to see how it evolves. Well, you both must like it because you're doing well. Uh, congratulations, uh, Mark. Congratulations, Val. Thanks a lot for taking the time uh, this morning. Are, are you guys up early? Was this too early? Do you guys sleep in or is, is early mornings okay, Kennedy, for you? Oh, this was awful. <laughs> Drag myself out of bed to do this. We don't play till 2.30. I was thinking of sleep until noon. No, it was... Uh... <laughs> We're up. We both have uh, young kids, so whether we want to sleep in or not, I think we're both wide-eyed around 7.30, so this was great. Thanks for having us on. Uh, We've got a game this afternoon at 2.30, our final round-robin game, and then hopefully the playoffs tonight at 6.30, so we'll uh, we'll probably just relax here and get ready for the game, and uh, yeah, this was a nice distraction from our typical bubble life, so uh, thanks to all of you guys for making it happen. It was uh, some good discussion. Good luck, Val. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Good luck. Thanks, you guys. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Well, very good, boys. Uh, Mark Kennedy, right? He's Val, little shy, little shy. You probably made her nervous, Kev. Okay, 
but Mark Kennedy always has lots to say. We thank those guys very much. Uh, Warren, pretty good interview with the two of them. Yeah, it was great. They made some great comments, and they're very knowledgeable curling people, and uh, mixed doubles is kind of a new venture for them, and it sounds like they're really enjoying it. Yeah, you can tell, Kevin, when we do ask them questions, uh, people heard during the interview uh, that mixed doubles is, is a complete departure from the normal game because they were, they were kind of stuck for an answer because, you know, they're not sure. They're not sure what to do, uh, particularly the one where you asked them, Kev, about who throws rocks at what time and, and your uh, discussion with them about is it mostly thirds who are making up mixed doubles teams. Well, isn't that interesting? And yeah, it's really fun to listen to uh, to both Mark and Vel because they're kind of, well, sort of new into this compared to four-person curling. And, and it's so interesting to bring those thoughts into their minds and they're thinking, well, geez, I, I, I don't know the answer to that yet. So funny, you know, because they're two of the best curlers in the whole world and they're, they're obviously doing well at mixed doubles. There's, uh, you know, there's a chance they'd be five and one in the round robin. Do you have a favorite, Kevin? Well, you'd hate to bet against Brett Gallant and Jocelyn. They're two seconds, not thirds, but boy, they play the game really, really well. And I actually, uh, uh, from the skips point of view, uh, Brad Gushu and Kerry Anderson are doing very, very well at this. And of course, Mark and Bell. So um, if I were to pick favorites, I, w- I would choose those three. Who's going to win it, Warren? Who's going to, what's it going to take to win the mixed doubles? Well, it's going to be kind of interesting. I think there's a number of teams that certainly uh, have an excellent chance, but but who knows? I look at uh, Kevin mentioned Gallant and Peterman, their former champions. Uh, kind of maybe a sleeper here is Walker and Myers, who are at five and zero when we're on air, and they are former champions, so they could have a good shot. Another kind of sleeper, Martin and Griffith, who have been in the final, I think, twice in previous World uh, Canadian Mixed Doubles. So. They could also be in the mix. Jones and Lang are going very well. So I think it's going to be a, a huge finish. Well, we'll make note of what you guys uh, picked, and then we'll we'll go back and check next week. Uh, so good luck to everyone in the uh, mixed doubles. Before we go, boys, I want to read an email uh, and get your reaction. It says, I am a Canadian and longtime curler and coach who has been lucky enough to be traveling and coaching internationally for three years now. I'm currently the coach of the wonderful Hungarian mixed doubles team, Palenksa and Kiss. We successfully defended the national title again this year. It was a three-peat and are looking forward to the Worlds and a chance to earn an Olympic spot. Competitions are a bit rare these days, but we did manage to win the recent event in the 2021 WCT West Bay Cup. I am madly in love with mixed doubles. For me, it is versatile, fun, fast-paced, enough to help younger uh, curlers stay interested. And brackets here weren't connected to Warren's view uh, about attracting and keeping the young curlers. As I currently travel and coach in Europe, I can say that it seems to have a much stronger draw here than back in Canada. This may have simply been about numbers in the beginning. I think we should promote the heck out of it. As a side note, it's easy to tell that Kevin likes the triples format. But I would point out that most of the advantages he sees in that game are also present in doubles. I do agree that we should have men's and women's doubles, not just mixed. But I feel that clubs are still having trouble establishing solid doubles play. So I think we should not bang the triples drum too hard yet until we get doubles better established. One thing at a time, he says, baby steps. I guess my question for discussion is about how we can get more folks playing the doubles format in clubs. In my club, shout out to West Northumberland Curling Club in Coburg, Ontario. I ran some successful one-day spiels, but it was like pulling teeth to get a solid league started. When it became an Olympic sport, I thought it would be easy, but still reluctance. I tried to dispel myths like you have to throw 
with a broom so you can chase and sweep your rock, etc. But still little progress. Younger curlers seem to like it. But in a club where most curlers are old, I don't want it to be seen as that version the kids play. That's from Dave Willis. Kevin, what do you say? Well, thank you, Dave. First of all, for the for the email, I, I really do like doubles and triples both. I think it's for different people. The doubles game is, as we talked about, fast and athletic, and you're going to sweat a lot, and it's perfect for young people and some older people that really want to get a workout in. Triples is more of a normal type of game where the thrower doesn't get up and sweep. There's a sweeper, but you switch positions so everybody gets a crack at it. So even older people that are just starting curling or just getting into it can play triples. That way it gets them into every position, but yet you, you, they're not getting killed with absolute crazy fitness and, and athleticism needed and, and running up and down the sheet. Because if you're a bit of a beginner, that's going to be dangerous. Like, <laughs> you know, you're coming out of the hat kind of wobbly. And now what, you're going to try to stand up and sweep? Oh my goodness, better have to have a helmet on. So I think we're talking two different things here a little bit. It is funny where he says, uh, Kevin... Let's not bang the triples drum one thing at a time. Right. Well, that's not the way my world works. <laughs> I get an idea of something and it drives my wife crazy. I go hard at it. And then the next thing comes up, I go hard at it. And as the wild Bill Hunter, who owned the uh, Edmonton Oilers for a while, said, if you want something done, find the busiest person you have. They all get it done. And that's kind of what I think too. <laughs> we can do more than one thing at a time. And I think doubles and triples are, uh, are kind of going after two different markets, two different groups of people. Uh, Warren, is, is, does Dave, our emailer, have legitimate concerns? I think he does because, again, the, the older people in a lot of these clubs have played four-person curling all their lives. They look at this and they kind of go, mm, I don't know about that. So I think initially it's probably going to appeal to younger, newer players. But I think one way you could introduce it to the older group, I know the other complaint we get is, well, you're going to cut down ice utilization because there's only going to be four people on the sheet versus eight. So it's a cost factor as well. So what I've suggested to some people, there's no reason why you can't still have it as a four people versus four people. Uh, make it a 10-end experience, which mixed doubles can easily be done in, ten, in eight, two hours with 10 ends. Have four people play for two ends have the next four people play for two ends, switch up every two ends, and the four that aren't on the ice playing could be having some beverages, having some food, something of that nature, and they, and they switch up. So you could go through uh, a two-hour period, a, a different approach to life, but you get people playing mixed doubles, you get them experiencing it, you're not losing any of your ice utilization, and you're also giving people a break after they played a couple ends as they ease into it. So there's different ways of looking at it, but I think Anything that you can come up with is going to make it work going forward. Okay, fellas. Well, that's a wrap. Another show in the bag. Uh, thanks a lot to Mark Kennedy and Val Sweeting. Thank you very much to Rod Paulson, who handles uh, all our social media stuff. His company is In-House Strategies. Uh, and if you need some social media work, uh, Rod's the guy to go to. Also, wearing your names on here now as a producer. Okay, you're getting yet another title uh, of the show. Thanks a lot, Warren, to you. And uh, from Sportsnet, Andrew Stokely uh, and... Amo, we appreciate it, what you're doing for us, and Jonathan. Uh, thanks a lot to those guys. Boys, off you go, Kevin. What's up for the rest of the week? Well, just getting that great big bag packed ready to dive into the <laughs> bubble on Monday. <laughs> Warren and I were talking off air. Warren said to me, is Kevin really going to call 96 games in the next eight weeks? It could be, yeah. I, I was just looking through the schedule, and, and 
yeah, it, it could be. It's it's incredible how many uh, curling games are going to happen in the bubble in Calgary, and and I'm not even part of the first three events, the Briar Scotties and uh, mixed doubles. So unreal. Well, if anyone, Kevin, can go with 18 minutes sleep a night, it's you. Okay, <laughs> you'll, you'll be good. Warren, you take it easy. Uh, thanks for everyone for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Inside Curling. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs>